May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A somewhat knotty problem, not the kind that even a scoutmaster that Steve Gregg might necessarily be able to solve, although maybe you can. Can we truly separate what we do on a Sunday from what we do on the rest of the week? Is our faith something that we compartmentalize and keep separate from everything else, every other aspect of our lives? Take religion and politics, for example. Two very different responses to this. I remember seeing an archive video of President Mobutu, the former president of Zaire, saying, misinterpreting, I believe, Jesus' words that you should render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's, keep religion out of politics. And contrast that with Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who said when people sort of thought that religion and politics didn't mix, he didn't know what Bible they were reading. Take faith in science, something that I have some experience of. I used to get, when I was working at the University of Liverpool, a, a certain amount of Hate mail might be putting it too strongly, but because my name was up publicly on the Christians in Science website as coordinating the Liverpool local group, you used to get some emails from people sort of saying, oh, you shouldn't be in science if you're somebody who believes or has faith. They seemed to have some mistaken view that I was corrupting the scientific process. It has to be said, most of those emails came from people who probably didn't have a lot of experience of science, of the practice of science by the content of what they were saying, but they were very adamant in their atheism. Can we keep these things separate? I'm not going to answer that question immediately. First, I'm going to show you a video. This is a video of a little bee that I found Saturday before last, week ago yesterday, trapped in a spider's web. Now, there might be debate as to whether or not it's right to try and rescue, intervene in the natural world. Our bee species, however, are globally in decline. Colony collapse syndrome is a big problem for honeybees. So I felt kind of justified in trying to extricate this bee from the web of a spider that was too small to eat it anyway. <laughs> and this is the little bee recovering afterwards. Still has a little bit of silk strapped on it. Let's call her Deborah, just for the sake of argument. Hopefully that's not anthropomorphizing too much. A devora is the Hebrew for bee. So let's call her Deborah. You can see she's sucking very way, happily away on a bit of tissue that I've put some dilute honey on because she was absolutely exhausted trying to free herself from this web of this much smaller spider. And as I filmed this, I was then reflecting on one of the passages from the lectionary for this Sunday. Isn't this the fast that I choose? to loose the bonds of wickedness, the shackles of injustice, depending on the translation, to undo the straps of the yoke, to set the downtrodden, the oppressed free? Is it not to share your food with the hungry? Now, it was a very small thing to remove that bee from a web and to feed it, and I have to say there was absolutely no attempt whatsoever on the part of that bee to sting me when it was sitting on the tip of my finger and I was trying to pull bits of silk off it. Perfectly placid. A very small thing to do. And unlike 
that passage in Isaiah, although I feel an affinity in a broader sense with that B, we go back about 600 million years in terms of evolution, in terms of our separation from each other, but nevertheless, there's a sense of kinship, but not as strongly as with members of our own species. So when Isaiah goes on to say, we shouldn't be hiding ourselves away from our own flesh and blood, from our own kin, how much more so than something like a little bee? It's interesting, when I shared that video with a friend, I shared it with a few people, when I shared it with one particular friend who himself had been through financial difficulties, he described in reply how connecting that bee with the passage in Isaiah, it challenged him to share food with a flatmate who was struggling financially at the time as well. So it's an a fortiori argument, essentially. How much more should we not be trying to release the shackles of our fellow human beings? The theme of untying, loosening bonds, is something that comes out in our gospel reading this morning as well. There's a strong link. Jesus describes this woman who has been bound up for 18 years. If the synagogue ruler and other people are happy to untie their beasts of burden on a Sunday, on the Sabbath, I should say, on, on, on the Sunday being the Lord's Day, if they are happy to untie their beasts of burden on the Sabbath, how much more should this woman, and he describes her as a daughter of Abraham, recognizing the common kinship again, uses the son of Abraham title to refer to Zacchaeus, and this woman is a daughter of Abraham, how much more should she not be freed? The same word is being used for her being freed, being untied, the verb luo, how much more should she not be untied as beasts of burden being untied? And Jesus criticizes the hypocrisy a woman who is humble, who comes in hunchbacked, probably, maybe suffering from kyphosis. We don't know from the details of the text. It's probably unwise to give a diagnosis. But she comes in hunched and humble, and Jesus heals the one who is hunched and humbled. Whereas the hypocrite, the ruler of the synagogue, is somebody who gets humbled in turn. Consider the response of the synagogue ruler. There are six days for work. Come and heal, be healed on those other days, not on the Sabbath. When you think about it, could there be a more utterly inappropriate response for the situation? Do you think the synagogue ruler would be capable of healing people who might be flooding in the other days of the week, once Jesus is gone? I think he's probably setting up even more trouble for himself, but probably hasn't even thought of that. And notice that he doesn't address Jesus directly. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus has been challenged for healing on the Sabbath. If you go back to chapter 6 of Mark's Gospel, uh, sorry, of Luke's Gospel, you can find this, this particular account also has its parallel in Mark and, and in Matthew. If you go back to chapter 6, we find Jesus has been challenged for healing on the Sabbath, a person who has a withered hand. And he asks the question, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good 
or to do harm. To heal or to destroy life, to save life or to destroy it? Well, the answer should be pretty obvious. The Pharisees at that context, the synagogue ruler in this context, they're hypocritical in having double standards, trying to separate out what can be done by their own rules on the Sabbath, not recognizing the Sabbath as something liberating, something freeing. If we go back to the description in Deuteronomy of the Ten Commandments, slightly different description to to that in uh, Exodus in this regard. The context of the Sabbath is the justification for it is one of giving freedom because the Israelites themselves were in bondage. Reading from chapter 5, verse 12, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to your Lord. On this you shall not do any work. Why? You shall remember, verse 15, you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord commands you to keep the Sabbath day. This is something that was meant to be liberating. So not one rule that you can only heal on a particular day of the week and not on other days, not one rule that you can only heal on a weekday, not on the Sabbath, that it is work and therefore you cannot help people. The hypocrisy is also shown in other contexts where Jesus challenges people. Again, in the context of hand-washing in Mark chapter 7. This people honors me with their lips, Jesus says, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, treating, teaching the doctrines, the commandments of men, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. The rules that the synagogue ruler had built up, no healing on the Sabbath, that's not something that's ever said in God's law and the Torah, that you can't heal. That's a commandment of men. Teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Is that something we ever do in our churches? We need to be very careful. This is something that is meant to be liberating, something that is meant to be freeing, just as the Israelites were enslaved. And so when we have the question, is it right, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, the answer is very clear, to do good. And the response of the woman herself who is healed is quite a contrast as well to the the synagogue ruler. Her response is just immediate. She has been given grace, and she gives God the glory. She praises God immediately. When we're considering how we worship, immediate thanksgiving is probably wise. And public, in her case, public immediate worship. In the song that Jane played during the offertory, Count Your Blessings, count your many blessings, and you'll be surprised all that the Lord has done. This is something we can all do. Often things that we take for granted, simple things, 
maybe obscure things. I was thinking this morning of giving thanks for denitrifying bacteria and nitrifying bacteria. It may sound a very obscure and bizarre thing, but without which a lot of our agriculture wouldn't be possible, and the food that we eat. There's so much we can be thankful for. And this leads us on to the psalm. The psalm describes Psalm 103 when we consider why we should be concerned with things like feeding the poor, as described by Isaiah, how this could be an expression of worship. The psalm shows us how this is in line with God's very character. Verse 6, Osei zedekot Adonai umishpetim l'kol The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all those who are oppressed. This is God's will, God's desire. And so this woman gives immediate praise because God has freed her. He has executed justice on her behalf through Jesus' healing ministry. Now, there are some things within the psalm that might seem a little bit perplexing. Just as a brief aside, I think it's probably helpful to cover them. One is when it describes the renewal of health like an eagle soaring. You can see reflections of this with other parts of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. Those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. In what way does this happen? And also, the other part of verse 3, which I didn't read out in our call, for, call to worship. Harophela called to Haliwaiki. He heals all your diseases. Is that our experience? Well, this is a psalm of David's. And David lost a son shortly after birth, following his wicked ways with Bathsheba. So David's experience wasn't that every single disease was necessarily healed. What sort of diseases might he have experienced? Well, there's speculation about this. If you look at Psalm 31, verse 10, Psalm 32, verse 3, there's reference to his bones wasting away. And there's one particular gerontologist who's written in the Journal of Gerontology, a chap based at Ben-Gurion University in Israel, who speculated, uh, Bluba Ben-Nun is his name, speculated that maybe David might have suffered from osteoporosis. We can't give a diagnosis again. We also read in Psalm 22, another Psalm of David's, in verse 14, how his bones are out of joint. Now, this is a very clear messianic Psalm. We read this now as pointing forward to describe Jesus' experience on the cross. But, I mean, if David was suffering from some condition affecting his bones, if those words aren't metaphorical in his case, maybe he is now giving thanks for that kind of healing. I think the important thing here is David isn't saying that God heals every single disease that everybody has. But when he heals his disease, he gives thanks. Every instance when he experiences healing, he gives thanks. The Lord heals all your diseases. This is worship as well. And as for eagles, how they renew their, their, themselves, well, you could speculate that maybe this is related to legends associated with the phoenix's rebirth, um, which go back to certainly Herodotus and 
some early portrayals, as Herodotus describes in the fifth century BC, he describes a phoenix looking like an eagle. That's speculative. Some people think it might be in terms of eagles renewing their feathers, their primaries, their flight feathers. One thing that is remarkable, though, is that birds compared to mammals of the same size are very resistant to oxidative damage, something associated with aging. And long-lived birds, eagles reasonably long-lived, they're not as long as some parrots or condors, um, they can live for about 20 years or so. They've, a lot of long-lived birds have high levels of uh, glutathione peroxidase, so oxidative damage resistance may be part of this. We can't say for sure. But the most important thing here to get back to the psalm is God's character. God executes righteousness and justice for the oppressed because God is a God who is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, as we read in verse 8. Again, in our worship and in our actions towards others, shouldn't it be similar? Steve referenced in your opening verses of Romans chapter 12. Paul has described God engrafting the Gentiles in, in chapter 11. He has broken into a doxology of praise towards the end of chapter 11. And then following on from this, he says, therefore I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable, logical, spiritual act of worship. Does that involve just one day of the week or just one limited set of activities? No, no, it involves everything that we do somehow being turned over to God in worship, or at least trying to do that. This is a very basic thing. Think of what Jesus described as the greatest commandment of all. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elohecha, v'chol levavcha, u'v'chol nafshecha, u'v'chol meodecha. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, all of yourself not separating out any particular parts. Now, yes, sometimes in our lives we compartmentalize for practical reasons, to deal with stressful situations, deal with one thing at a time. But in terms of our worship, it's not something that's limited to a time of worship, which are a few songs that we sing. It's much, much bigger than that. Yes, it is that, but it's much more than that. The problem that the people faced whom Isaiah was addressing was they felt that their fasting, their religious practices weren't working. If you go back to the beginning of Isaiah chapter 58, a little bit before the reading that we had, the people are saying, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And again, if we look lower down, the way they're treating the Sabbath, they're not treating it as a delight. It's become a burden, as in the case of the synagogue ruler. If you turn your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, 
and you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you will delight in the Lord. So the Sabbath should be a delight, but the activities of the Sabbath should be continued through the week in terms of worshiping God through other activities. And in the same way, good activities that help others, liberate others, these should not be just confined to the Sabbath. We get a more extreme view in the case of Micah. People are thinking about offering their sons in sacrifice to God. And he says, no, no. As the wall hanging behind us in memory of Mo Blake reminds us from Micah chapter 6, verse 8, he has shown you, O man and woman, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Not necessarily all these separated out religious practices. Yes, they have their place, but the fundamental here is to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees that Jesus addresses elsewhere, Matthew 23, verse 23, for example, he says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your mint, dill, and common, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And then in a wonderful piece of biting hyperbole, he says, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. The hypocrisy is not recognizing what is true to God's heart. And this can be practiced throughout the week, Sabbath and during the weekday. It's what in a way which I couldn't have anticipated because this rather matches Steve's shirt this morning. Whole life discipleship. This is something, set of resources produced by the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity. It's not something that is just restricted to one day of the week or one set of activities, prayer and singing hymns or worship songs. This isn't what worship is limited to. It's something we can carry out throughout the week. I referenced earlier in prayer how for those engaged in the scientific enterprise, their research can be viewed as an act of worship. For those who are engaged in any line of work, think about how your work can be involved as an act of worship. For those involved in the care of others through medicine, through nursing, sometimes it's more obvious. But even if you're thinking in terms of managing accounts, whatever role you're in during the week, think, how can I worship God through this? How can I glorify God? How can I be a witness to Him, a witness to Christ through all that I'm doing? I'll close just with the words of a hymn. It's one that I was considering for this service, but uh, there's too, too many different tunes that it could be set to, so we thought that could, could be confusing. But one that I used to sing in my primary school. The wise may bring their learning, the rich may bring their wealth, and some may bring their greatness, and some their strength and health. We too would bring our treasures to offer to the king, we have no wealth or learning, what gifts then shall we bring? We'll bring the many duties we have to do each day. We'll try our best to please him at home, work, school, or play. 
And better are these treasures to offer to the king than richest gifts without them. Yet these we all may bring. Let us pray. Loving Father, help us, not just throughout the rest of this day, but throughout the coming week, to give you glory, to worship you, to give you thanks for all of your generosity to us, and to express this not merely with words on one day of the week, but to express this through our actions to others to express this by acting justly, loving mercy, walking humbly with you. To undo the straps of the yoke of others wherever we can. To set the oppressed free wherever we can. Through whatever simple actions or gestures, help us to be people who truly worship you with every aspect of our being with every moment of our lives henceforth. We ask this in Jesus' name, who taught us when we pray to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.